Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian as we read through the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, where are we and where are we headed this week? Where we are is with Jack and Stephen aboard HMS Surprise. Last time, they had figured out how to live on a desert island as Jack was trying to manage Stephen's feelings and figure out how to survive. Stephen, along the way, taking issue with Jack's taste in coconuts, but they had spotted a boat which had come out to rescue them, Mike. Almost as quickly as they were stranded, they were rescued. We heard about that rescue. We heard about this great affection that the men of the ship have for Jack and for Stephen. And we learned that the Norfolk may still be close by. And that set our pulses racing because the chase of the Norfolk is what this book is all about. We also talked a little bit about rumours of that new Patrick O'Brien movie script that may be in the offing. That was last week. This week, Mike, we're going to be with Jack. Jack is happy to be alive, happy to be rescued and back aboard ship. We're going to do some reflecting on the lot of women and men in the world and think about how this all relates to the Articles of War. And Stephen's going to try his hand at birdwatching in a storm, and that's going to result in a change of plans. Ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah. So uh, so here we are on the far side of the world. And as the chapter opens, O'Brien tells us Jack Aubrey lay in his cot savoring his resurrection. Boy, that sounds like a great place to be. Yeah. <laughs> like that. So and it's Sunday morning, but Jack is having a lion. Instead of getting up early to prepare for divisions and church, He's relishing how good it is to be alive in a dry, comfortable bed. You know, Killick's shrill voice comes in, and that reminds him of the Pahis bosun mates, the ones that were tormenting him a while back, which reminds him of his mother-in-law, Mrs. Williams, and his father in Parliament working against his naval interests, his mistreatment by the Admiralty, and the possibility that he still might be thrown on shore to live on half pay. But... Jack thinks to himself, yet how utterly trifling these things were. And the lawsuits, too, in comparison with being alive. O'Brien tells us Stephen, a Catholic, had already performed his action of grace. Jack's happy, thankful mind now did much the same, though in a less formal manner, reveling and delighting in what he had been given back. And Jack goes on, he's eating his breakfast. There's a pot of homemade ash grove marmalade with Sophie's handwriting on the label. And he just wishes that Sophie was there with him. It's it's a really touching moment, isn't it? And a little bit of stoicism for Jack. You know, however rubbish you think all these things have been in your life. Actually, you're alive. And that's really, really great. Inside in the cabin, all is good. There's marmalade. Outside in the open sea, Things are getting ugly. There is this curious diagonal crosswell, this odd pattern of waves that Jack had never experienced, but nonetheless, he's in good spirits. He greets everyone as he goes out to divisions. This is the the Sunday inspection of the ship and the whole crew. He goes around the ship with Moat. Everyone's happy to see him. He's happy to see them. And even the the bosun's cat joins in, slightly kind of diluting the solemnity of the occasion by walking around with a with a tail in the air there. Right. And meanwhile, below decks, Stephen and Martin are both a bit put out. 
They put out, first of all, Martin is still healing from his wounds. They're very undignified wounds that he got at the hand of the Polynesian women there. And uh, Stephen, from his recent experiences and being up half the night treating the purser who had overindulged in celebrating Jack and Stephen's return. And, you know, Stephen's kind of been brought back down to earth here with his regular daily plain ordinary duties to attend to as a surgeon. Stephen says that the public associates the naval service with what he calls drunkenness, sodomy and brutal punishment. And they, having one of these kind of Stephen and Nathaniel Martin back and forths here, Martin says that these things are present wherever a large number of men gather, but the service has what he calls an essential good nature and also courage and also altruism. And he's thinking now about the men who rescued him from a sticky fate and more wounds aboard the Pahi. And this being O'Brien, and this being Stephen and Nathaniel Martin, this kicks off a discussion of men and women and their connection and their differences. Stephen says, did you not happen to notice a tall, slim, broad-shouldered young woman with a spear, very like an undraped Athene? No, said Martin. I saw nothing but a swarthy crew of ill-looking female savages, full of malignant fury a disgrace to their sex. I dare say they had been ill-used, the creatures, said Stephen, who's always the liberal. Perhaps they had, said Martin, but to carry the resentment to the point of the emasculation you described seems to me inhuman and profoundly wicked. Oh, says Stephen, really invited here to philosophize and jumping right in on it. Oh, he says, as far as unsexing is concerned, who are we to throw stones? With us, any girl that cannot find a husband is unsexed. If she is very high or very low, she may go her own way with the risks detailed therein. But otherwise, she must either have no sex or be disgraced. She burns and she's ridiculed for burning. To say nothing of male tyranny, a wife or daughter being a mere chattel in most codes of law or custom and brute force. To say nothing of that, hundreds of thousands of girls are in effect unsexed every generation and barren women are despised as eunuchs. I do assure you, Martin, that if I were a woman, I should march out with a flaming torch and a sword. I should emasculate right and left. As for the women of the Pahi, I am astonished at their moderation. Now, this is a great speech from Stephen. And I, part of me thinks, surely, surely Martin's not going to try and keep going here. But Martin sticks his oar back in <laughs> and says, well, hold on. I've got, the, I've got the perspective of experience. He says, you would have been still more astonished, says Martin, at the force of their blows. It is the black shame of the world, says Stephen, that they should be deprived of the joys of love. Theresia said that they were ten times as great as those enjoyed by men, or, or was it thirty, leaving aside the far more dubious pleasures of motherhood and keeping house. And Martin's not having any of this. I think he knows he's on, a, on sticky ground here, but he's going to keep trying to stand his corner. Theresius, he says, represents no more than the warm imaginings of Homer. Decent women take no pleasure in the act, but only seek to nonsense, says Stephen. This is so, oh, Mike. I, I love this. I I love the Stephen going full tilt for feminism and also going even more full tilt as he gets resistance from Martin. But this character Theresius. What what do we know about Theresius? Well, well, it's interesting. You know, for somebody to have a perspective on men and women, Stephen's calling up from Greek mythology. Uh, this character who was a blind prophet of Apollo in Thebes. And, and he was famous for his clairvoyance. 
and for having been transformed into a woman for seven years. So he's got the perspective of both people. And the pronouns to show. <laughs> That's right. There's, there's many, many tales about him. All sorts of authors talk about him. He was the son of a shepherd and a nymph. And in one of the tales, he was drawn into an argument between Hera and her husband, Zeus. And the theme was, who has more pleasure in sex? You know, uh, you know she says it's the man. Zeus says it's the woman. And Theresius says, uh, of the 10 parts, speaking of sex, a man enjoys only one. So women are 10 times, <laughs> enjoy it 10 times more than men do, or at least experience it much more broadly, according to this, uh, this clairvoyant seer here. Now, it's funny that in connection to Homer, you know, where Martin's sort of saying to Homer, now Homer didn't tell that tale. What Homer talked about was in the Odyssey, Odysseus calls up the spirits of the dead and the seer gives Odysseus a lot of advice on how to kind of survive the rest or a lot of the rest of his journey. Yeah. Wow. And again, it's, it's really great stuff. It's a reference for us to follow. And it's also this kind of current going back and forth between Stephen and, between, and, and Nathaniel Martin. I love the fact that we've got feminism alive and well in O'Brien's writings, even when we don't have Diana and we don't have Sophie around. I do feel sorry for poor old Martin. He's kind of the Patsy character. You know, he gets to give rather inadequate voice to all these conventional, narrow-minded bits of 19th century received wisdom just so that Stephen Maturin can slap them down. It reminds me of all, you know, all the counter-protagonists getting spanked in Aaron Sorkin scripts like if you good men and the west wing and all the rest of it you're gonna vote it out of committee yeah in fact we're getting another billion for childcare. what do you have to give the republicans for a billion dollars 300 million for marriage incentives <laughs> you mean like subscriptions to bride and groom magazine no the marriage incentives are a series i know what the marriage incentives are let's not do this cash now. bonuses to moms on welfare who married the child's father canceling out child support debts if the you know what parents... every single study everyone shows the kids do better in two parents. Kids are better off if they're raised by parents who love them. Your solution is loveless. It's not my solution. Does my government really believe that the law can create a family? Do, do these old fat ass men really believe that if they just pay people to act like leave it to beaver, everything will be fine? Did you really think the person in my job was gonna sit? This is about collecting votes from white men. Amy, if we don't get elected, I promise. <sighs> Yeah, I, I think the only good place for playing a straw man is the Wizard of Oz. In the rest, <laughs> the rest of the times, we'd rather not be the straw man, right? Yeah. So this kind of raises the question in our minds: What's going to happen with Nathaniel Martin? Is he going to stay the whipping boy for Stephen's superior philosophy and wit, or is he going to get a role to play? Ah, oh, that see. would be interesting. Well, Jack comes down to visit the sick bay and Jack tells him that they've recovered yet another fresh Norfolk barrel, suggesting that they're at least within a week of them. Uh, and Jack tells Martin that for church day, you know, he was going to do a sermon, but he's decided, nope, he's going to read the articles of war instead of the sermon. And when Jack starts to read the article, he goes, the articles of war, he goes back up on deck. Stephen and Martin are still down in the sick bay. His voice comes down this wind sail that you know, Stephen always has installed there. And so as O'Brien writes, the words of Jack reading the articles and the words of Stephen and Martin's conversation just become this counterpoint to one another. And this continues O'Brien's men and women commentary 
this alternating. Stephen and Martin are talking about a fallow rope. And here we are in the ship, and you would think a fallow rope must be a hawser, must be one of these. No, no, it's a bird, of course. This is Stephen and Martin. What are we thinking about here, right? Yeah. And Jack's reading kind of the introduction to the Articles of Wars as, as this bird subject coming up. And in the introduction, what we get out of that is that it's written for, by, and about men. It's all about men. You know, all the all the nouns here are the majest, his majesty's navies, God, the Lord's, both spiritual and temporal, parliament. And Stephen and Martin's comments are chiefly about women, but also women relative to men in this yeah. unusual phalarope, this bird that they're discussing. So, right, Mike, so here goes the first bit of the Articles of War from Jack. He says, All flag officers and all persons in or belonging to His Majesty's ships or vessels of war, being guilty of profane oaths, cursings, execrations, drunkenness, uncleanness, or other scandalous actions in derogation of God's honour and corruption of good manners... And then we hear Stephen saying to Martin that the, the phalaropan is much larger, much brighter than the male. So, you know, very different than other birds. And the, the hen does not believe her duty is, as O'Brien writes, merely to tend her nest, brood her eggs and nourish her chicks. So Jack carries on. Articles of War. If any ship or vessel shall be taken as prize, none of the officers, mariners, or other persons on board her shall be stripped of their clothes or in any sort, pillaged, beaten, or evil entreated. Yeah. So we continue on with all these male privileges here. But here is Stephen describing a pair of fallow ropes that he witnessed himself. And he observed that as soon as the hen had laid her clutch of eggs, she was away. And the poor cock had to look after them himself. So the male is tending the, the nest of eggs. The hen, she swam. She played with other hens. She mingled with the unattached cocks, as, as uh, O'Brien writes. And he sits on the nest all but five minutes a day. He's barely eating. He's covering them when it's raining. He's having to watch out for them. And then when they hatch, he has to feed the four of them, and they're all bawling and screaming. And, and Stephen notes that he wasn't very good at it. He grew anxious and thin and partially bald, while she continued to play right close by, kind of, uh, you know, with, within his sight. So there was a foul, says Stephen, that knew how to live a life of her own, I believe. And Martin says, but surely, Matron, as a married man, you cannot approve the pen. Why, as to that, said Stephen, with a sudden vivid image of Diana dancing a quadrille, perhaps she may carry things a little far, but it does go some ways towards redressing a balance that is so shamefully down on the one side alone. Ah, oh, great stuff. But we're not done with the back and forth. We go back to Jack continuing with the Articles of War. And since we in one of O'Brien's favorite juxtapositions, we've got um, love and family and marriage juxtaposed with war and fire because Jack right. turns to and he says any person in the fleet who shall unlawfully burn or set fire to any magazine or store of powder or ship boat catch hoy or vessel tackle or furniture thereunto belonging not then appertaining to an enemy pirate or rebel shall suffer death <sighs> it is really great Stephen's been talking about the relationships between male and female and he turns this little optimistic forward-looking you know curious open-minded ending and jack finishes off with the most definitive bit of the articles of war 
shall suffer death. This great ringing end sounds really ominous. And meanwhile, Martin's turning Stephen's philosophical insights back onto Stephen's life. And he starts talking about the way men treat women and how women should act given all of this and whether Stephen would like Diana to act this way. And I think Martin's trying to get the idea of there being a code of obligation and a propriety in society. And I think Stephen's having none of it. Yeah, and I'm and I'm kind of thinking to myself, yeah, watch, watch out, Stephen. Here, you may be carrying an open light into a powder store or a magazine <laughs> oh, yes. as you think about what you'd like Diana to, to act like. But hey, kudos to Stephen. I'm I'm loving this. You know, it's fascinating. This fallow rope. I mean, O'Brien always just nails it. It's it's a shorebird, by the way, a close relative to the Shanks. That yeah. being my my surname, uh, another sure bird, but it is kind of uniquely known for this reversal of male and female, male and female coloring, male and female roles. The males are monogamous. They watch over the nest. They raise the young. The females just lay the eggs and then head off to find new mating partners. So they're just kind of going one to another to another. As the season ends, the, you know, the females take off and migrate. If the, the males have to hang out with the, uh, the newborns or the eggs if they haven't. And they also have a very peculiar spinning behavior. They've got these specially kind of lobed feet and, and allows them to swim very quickly in tight circles that creates a vortex which pulls food particles up to the surface. So might be might be fun to see that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a fascinating video there. Maybe we can post that out this week. Yeah, that would be fantastic. <laughs> Especially spinning aimlessly sounds like a good right. going on. So while we've got this really curious and sort of ex- almost exotic flight of fancy about the birds and their behavior and about the male and the female, we're going to go back to a real hardcore male society here because on deck the crew has asked jack through moat if they can have a prize fight and this is something that they said that the doctor had always wanted to see jack says no because it's a sunday he thinks what's called a bare knuckled semi-slaughter would be inappropriate but he says okay to the idea of fighting with padded gloves with boxing as as we would know it and this gets off this whole other conversation about prize fighters and boxers. Stephen reports that he had once met a famous boxer called Henry Pierce in a stagecoach. Pierce had invited Stephen to see him fight Thomas Cribb. Very, very famous name in prize fighting. But Stephen didn't get to go. And this opens up a whole new line of respect that Moet has for Stephen. Pierce was famously known as the Game Chicken. Now, both of these fighters, Cribb and Pierce, are real champions boxing champions in england and of the world at the time great reference for patrick o'brien to pick up pierce was known as the game chicken because he signed his name hen henry short shortened to hen and we're going to hear more references to thomas crib later on we're going to hear in the reverse of the medal how one of jack's favorite long cannons is named after him and mike it it's an interesting point that we've heard a lot in the books so far about men of the upper and middle classes dueling, dueling for the purpose of settling a point of honor, dueling to the point of uh, wounding or death. But this is the first time we've heard about customary fights taking place between working class people, the foremast hands. Right. And of course, these are not fights over honor and these are not even remotely fights to the death. These are sporting contests, albeit pretty brutal ones. 
And it's a tradition that continues. The sport of boxing is a big deal for the Army and the Navy and the Marines, certainly in the UK, and I bet for the US Armed Forces as well. And milling, the idea of just kind of pounding away at somebody else, is part of the training and the culture of bits of the British Armed Forces. But that's all getting pretty dark. The, the tone here, even though boxing is, is a brutal activity, the tone here is very lighthearted. It's an entertainment. And it's a further indication, I think, that Jack feels back at home amid the naval family and all their customs and their entertainments. Yeah. And 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 I love it, you know, it's almost kind of a one last little footnote on the part of O'Brien here about talking about men and the differences with women. It's like, oh my gosh, on a Sunday, you know, bare knuckle fighting. No, we can't have that. But we can have boxing. We can have all the boxing <laughs> we want. Right. <laughs> here, here we go. Men, our knuckles just slightly off the floor as we walk along. <laughs> it's just brilliantly done there. Too true. Too true. Well, we're all set up for the boxing. However, as often happens, the weather gets worse and the fighting is postponed. But we do get treated to another nice Aubreyism, and, and we see Stephen kind of taking care of his friend Jack here. Lord, Stephen said Jack when they were alone, how pleasant it is to be aboard again, don't you find? Certainly, says Stephen. Well, Jack says, only this morning I was thinking about how right they were to say it was better to be a dead horse than a live lion. <laughs> and, and Jack kind of gazes out. He kind of thinks over these words and he goes, no, I mean, better to flog a dead horse than a live lion. Stephen says, I quite agree. Well, see, Jack says, that, even that's not quite right neither. I, I know there's a dead horse in it somewhere, but I'm afraid I brought it I brought by the lee this time, though. I rather pride myself on Proverbs, bringing them in aptly, you know, and, and to the point, never distress yourself, brother. There's no mistake, I'm sure. It's a valuable saying and one that admonishes us never to underestimate our enemy. For whereas flogging a dead horse is child's play, doing the same to a lion is potentially dangerous, even though one may take a long spoon. <laughs> I love how Steve is just joining. He's 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 piling his own Aubreyisms on top of Jack's own. It's great. And of course, I think the saying there is when you sup with the devil, you should take a long spoon. But we're going to hear some more about the devil in a second. The weather is really bad in the morning. Stephen's got water coming into his cabin. The ship is lurching in ways that he's never known. And remember we said earlier in the chapter that this strange cross sea has set up and we start to wonder what this all portends. Padine, his servant, comes in and tells him, the devil's abroad. And he's pointing up at the storm. That's exactly what he's talking about. The weather is so strange that O'Brien describes it in a paragraph that he notes he had copied from an actual account, this weird behavior of this cross sea and these strange waves. Stephen goes to Jack to ask about it. And Jack says he'll tell him all about it at breakfast and asks if Stephen has seen the albatross-like bird. And as it flies by, Stephen runs to see it and is forcefully flung from the gangway into the waist, striking his head on a cannon. And Mike, it's it's the most incredibly matter-of-fact way to say, all of a sudden, Stephen's got a head injury, his life is in danger. And I, I remember the first time I got to the, it was almost too matter-of-fact for me. I had to stop and kind of roll back a sentence and say, wait, 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 did, did I miss something? Stephen didn't give a witticism as he sort of stepped out. There was no foreboding of this at all. We just get, boom, everything else undercut by this really serious injury for Stephen here. Yeah, I, I, I'm completely with you, Ian, because I'm, I'm thinking, what? And, and O'Brien goes right on. He describes Stephen as dead 
apart from a just perceptible breathing and a very faint pulse. Jack uh, sends word down to Martin. Martin, who's you know recovering in the sick bay, actually comes up physically to look at Stephen, and he advises against bloodletting, which is what Jack had asked him about. He notices there are a couple bottles of brandy close by. He says, "Nope, nope, not that either." But it says Stephen should be moved downstairs. What he needs is darkness and quiet, and to feel less of this you know incredible ship's motion here. Uh, Martin says he's going to take a look at Stephen's books to try to determine what to do. Jack asks him what he thinks might happen. And Martin's saying, well, you know, it could be anything. He could die. He could stay in a coma. He might even perhaps just wake from it. He'll just have to do more research. And Jack, I, I love this. Jack asks Bondin, you know, if, if he can get some men to move Stephen down. And Bondin says, no, no, you know, he's got to have a tackle here. Yeah. But Bondin says, I would not slip with him, not for a world of gold. And so Bondin gets the strongest men on the ship. They wedge themselves in and carefully lower Stephen, O'Brien writes, as if his skin were made of eggshell. They put him back in his cot. Padin is sitting next to him, holding on to the cot to keep it still. We're really seeing a lot of Padin in this story. Yeah, we, just little moments, not any major episodes, right. but we get this really strong sense he's very, very attached to Stephen. He's going to be his very, very dedicated companion. And at the risk of a little spoilerage, I wonder whether O'Brien already knew that Padine was going to be an important character in the novels to come after this, whether he was part of the sort of arc that he had sketched out for Stephen, or whether O'Brien just sort of uncovered Padine in the process of writing this book and then built him into more later on. But if if you're not reading ahead of us, then you're going to hear more about Padine, and he's a great character. Very, very, very dedicated to Stephen, as we're seeing here. Neat. Yeah, it's kind of a question between... I remember reading a discussion between Stephen King and J.K. Rowling about writing, how you know she kind of plans this stuff way ahead. King says, you know, I just kind of get into the world and start unearthing things and see what's there. <laughs> and yeah. so good question. Wonder what they did here. Well, so what happens here, Ian? Well, it's, it's, it's strange because all of a sudden, having almost skipped past it and having at first doubted that this could be anything serious, I'm really starting to worry on behalf of Stephen as I get into reading this. Stephen lay still in this cot below decks as the hours passed over him in black silence. While on deck, all hell broke loose. There were mad blasts of wind from every direction. Thunder, lightning, St. Elmo's fire, a water spout collapsing on the heads. Mike, this is what all of this confused diagonal crossy has been leading up to. They're in the midst Mm. of this really big tropical storm. It's moment-to-moment survival. We've got the pumps working incessantly. We've got all these freakish accidents threatening to sink the ship. The next day is an ordinary blow. It's a bad one, but of a kind that they've experienced before, I think. And Martin takes over for Stephen, treating patients who've been injured. And Jack looks in on the patients, thanks Martin, and he goes to check on Stephen. And given the surprisingly small number of casualties of the severe weather, it says he felt encouraged as he went down the ladder and quite hopeful as he opened the cabin door. But there, under the swinging lantern, Stephen looked like a dead man. His temples were sunk, his nostrils pinched, his lips were colourless. He was lying on his back, and his grey, closed, utterly motionless face 
had an inhuman lack of expression. I thought he was gone not five minutes ago, said Mrs. Lamb, watching over Stephen. And from sort of incredulity at the beginning, we really start to believe that this is a dangerous moment for for Stephen. And it it gives me the shivers a little bit as I read it. And Mike, since every now and again we're picking up connections to the movie, we don't see an image of Stephen like this, but we do see an image of midshipman Blakeney about a third of the way through the movie when he's about to go and have surgery to repair his damaged arm. We have this really kind of ghostly shot of this boy's face, sunken temples, motionless, expressionless. And I kind of wondered as I was reading this, was that an image that planted itself in Peter Weir's mind for him to use for the sequence involving Blakeney? I'm, again, as I mentioned before, again, if it was George R. R. Martin, I, I'd be really worried, seriously worried here at this point. So I think... I think I'm going to have to take a moment and just compose myself. Oh, Mike, I think we can wait, we can find a moment to squeeze that in. Oh, why don't you do some deep breathing exercises and we'll all be back in a few moments here. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. So welcome back, Mike. We were just talking before the break about just how grave the situation seems to be for Stephen. How is it looking now? Well, there continues to be no change. And the next day at dinner, Jack suggests to Martin that perhaps trepanning might help since Stephen's injury seems similar to the one that Joe Place had had. And Martin's been reading Stephen's books and he's thinking the same thing. But but Martin's concerned. I mean, he's assisted in this operation with Stephen, but he you know he he feels like he needs to know more, he needs to learn more, practice more, and tells Jack he could never operate while the ship is moving and rocking like this. And Jack tells him that they're at the tail of a typhoon, so the bad weather is likely to continue for some time. Oh boy ever deeper jeopardy for Stephen. He he appears to get worse, his condition seems to deteriorate. And Martin's hardening in his belief that the operation, this trepanning, is called for, but that needs light and it needs a still ship. Jack says they'd have to reach the Marquesas, perhaps too far away, or maybe find a reef or an uncharted island, maybe a little bit like the one that Stephen and Jack found themselves on a couple of chapters ago. So they sail on. And Jack's really anxious at this point. He says, I cannot bear the sight of Maturin just fading away like this for want of care. For want of a bold stroke, said Jack. The pulse under his attentive fingers was now so faint that it was not above once in five minutes that he could be sure of it. And so Jack's saying, I can't bear the sight of the want of a bold stroke. Martin's got the contrary point of view. He says, I cannot bear the thought of Maturin being killed by my want of skill or by some wretched jerk of the deck under me. And Martin, this is the one who's improvised Lavoisier Trophine had made some shocking plunges right through the practice skulls. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. 
And for once, I, I read this and I'm not thinking, Martin, you're just a bit of a petty reactionary. I think he's got a very, very real, very human, very understandable concern for, I've never done this before. If my hand slips, this guy's brains are in my lap. Right. I mean, he's been he's been taking some of their precious, you know, natural philosophy specimens and actually operating on these skulls, trying it out. And as the ship moves, he's not having much luck here. So I'm with mm-hmm. you. Well done, Martin. I, I couldn't agree with you more. So even, even though the repair to Stephen's head is temporarily on hold, the repairs to the ship are going ahead. Jack has got all these repairs underway. He's pacing the quarterdeck and they spot land. Another uncharted island. Who would have thought it? Two right. uncharted islands in three chapters. Amazing. Um, Jack quickly climbs up through. Mike, where does he climb in order to see the island? Oh, right up through the lover's hole. Welcome, Jack. Good to have you here. Up. And let's get this thing with Stephen sorted. Could we please? Right. Yeah, let's, let's. So he, he, he pulls a classic Jack move. He orders light horses to the mastheads, kind of ugly, thick, hairy ropes to the mastheads to improve the strength of the rig so that it can carry more sail and take more pressure. He sets these hawsers that allows them to race ahead. He puts his best men on the wheel, relieves them every glass, that's every half hour, to make all possible speed. And Hog the Whaler looks at this sighting that they've made, confirms it's this tall island. And the surprise is moving as fast as she ever has done. Every man doing everything he can to propel her forward. She's described as racing through the sea, flinging a bow wave so high to leeward that the sun sent back a double rainbow. Discreet cheering started forward and spread aft. Everybody on the quarterdeck was grinning. They're moving so fast, in fact, that the reel from casting the log is snatched away as they try to make their speed measurement. (sighs) So Jack appears to have helped out with the spotting of the island and the setting of the rig and the exploiting of the wind conditions. He says to Martin, okay, it's your turn now. You've got to be ready to operate in the next hour. And Mike, this is a really ingenious bit of jeopardy for Stephen. Like we started out not really seriously thinking that he's going to die from this injury because, you know, it was a very matter of fact injury. This is Stephen... As a, a dumbass injury like that by itself shouldn't be a reason for his character arc to end, even though we're not in a George R. R. Martin novel. Right. But by complicating it like this with all these little extra bits of jeopardy, O'Brien's really drawing us into caring about this. The person who might try and operate on Stephen, that's Martin, he's inexperienced and his practice hasn't been going well. This guy Martin's also been on the other side of a few of Stephen's more fractious points of view, so their feeling is not great between them. And the weather is bad and the ship's unstable. And Stephen could almost die by accident, we're thinking. Stephen could almost die just by a slip of the hand or a crash of a wave. It's a really ingenious way to get us to set up a decent level of anxiety for Stephen, even though he's such a major character. Plus, this haste to get to the island, well, it's a setup for what's going to happen in the next chapter. Well, good point. Good point. I did love that moment where... You know, the whole crew is all over the deck. The Marines are lining the sides, you know, adding a little weight for balance. And everybody is cheering that they're getting, you know, they just lost the doctor and the captain once. They feel like they're about to lose him again. They're cheering because they're going to get to land. They're going to be able to operate. We know there are no secrets aboard a ship with these paper thin walls. So, you know, I'm loving that. Well, Martin is explaining Stephen's condition to Jack and Moet interrupts them. 
a signal has been spotted on the island, a torn blue and white flag. So Jack is kind of up, you know, attempting to, to look at this island, to navigate them into a lagoon. And from up there in the rigging, he spots a number of men running around on the island. Some of them are signaling to go north, not through this apparent gap that he's heading for uh, as they run along this reef. But as they get up to that gap, the water's clear and they see the Norfolk is sunk there. Uh, you know, her bowsprit, her masts are gone, her back's broken. There's a great hole in her through which sharks are passing. And Jack orders the surprises, pennant and colors to be raised. Oh, it's, it's a really fascinating moment, partly because in one sentence, O'Brien has undercut the whole purpose of the book. Like we were chasing the Norfolk and we're going to catch her up and there's going to be a fight and we're going to take vengeance for all these whalers. But no, 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 she's already sunk. Right. The weather got her. She's there in the water. We can see her, which is a very strange way to, pardon the metaphor, take the wind out of our sails. <laughs> but also, I, I love that we're seeing sharks. I'd, I'd forgotten how many shark interactions there are in this book. He, could have, he should have called it the wine dark shark or something. But I have a feeling, Mike, we haven't heard the last of the sharks. No, no, no. I think you're right, Ian. Well, you know, these colors go up. This really upsets the men on shore and many of them run off northward. They're, you know, like getting off the beach now and the rest stops signaling. Jack stops along the reef and and he's looking up. He sees this cove there. There's a stream. There's tents and shelters. Men are lined up. Um, and apparently at this point, uh, they've been given a command because they're all pointing their arms northward to another channel where the stream flows through the reef. Um, Jack's a little concerned. He doesn't want to risk the ship in an ebbing tide. And he orders a boat away to check the waters. Honey comes back. He reports up. There's this really sharp coral. They kind of could just make it. And Jack says, no, no, no. He anchors outside the reef. And he sends Moet and the Marines in under a flag of truce to bring the American captain back to the ship. Sends his best mm. compliments, asks him to repair a board. Um, and they, you know, the crew, everybody's kind of looking through telescopes or anything they have. They're, they're scanning the island. <laughs> they're looking for women. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And they determine that the thing is deserted apart from these Norfolks kind of scattered all over the beach here. Um, and they're all getting prepared. They're expecting the captain, the American captain, to come back. They've set up this big ceremony to welcome him over the side. But they see there's no commissioned officer aboard as the boat comes mm. back in, and they disband the welcoming ceremony. Moat comes back on board and reports to Jack. He says, he's sorry, but the war is over. The American who's with him, who's not an officer, comes over, gives Jack joy of the peace. And we discover how come it is that there's a non-officer person coming aboard. This is Butcher, the former assistant surgeon in the Constitution, who had saved Jack's arm when Jack was a prisoner. He tells Jack that Palmer, the captain, didn't come over because he, Butcher, is the only man with a respectable coat. He remembers dining with Aubrey in Boston and invites him and his officers to dinner the next day at three o'clock. And Jack questions him a little bit further about this piece. Butcher says that they had heard about it from a British whaler that they had had to let go, and they had had it confirmed to them by a ship from Nantucket. Butcher asks after Dr. Maturin and about this 
uh, procedure that's going to take place to presumably uh, open his head to fix this head wound. And Butcher says he's done hundreds of trepanning operations and is happy to do this one. So maybe this is going to be a save for Martin here. Maybe everything's going to be okay. Butcher admires Stephen's French trephine, the Lavoisier trephine, tells him how best to move him to shore at once and request some carpenters to build a shelter. So it looks like Butcher and Martin are going to take care of this and they're going to save Stephen. Certainly, he's really hot to operate immediately as Butcher. He's going like, okay, let's get on and get this done. Typical surgeon. Um, Jack plans to go ashore with them in the launch and tells Moet to anchor the ship and gackle his cables in a good 20 fathoms because Jack is going to rejoin them later when all is well and reminds him as well, you will gackle your cables, won't you? Now, Mike, there's, there's a bit of controversy here about this word gackle it's it's clear from the context that it means protect or somehow support your cables there are resources online that suggest that other forms of the word keckling or cakling might be used to describe winding old ropes around the outside of another rope to protect it from friction or from damage and it makes sense to me and i as i read this i'm thinking yeah yeah that sounds okay i've, I've got no first-hand knowledge Nobody in my sailing life has ever told me to gackle a cable. I have heard people talk about serving cables and worming cables, and that that makes perfect sense. You could certainly imagine that where there's a coral bottom and you've got a rope cable as opposed to chain, as there would be nowadays, whenever you've got that, you might want to protect your cable. So that makes perfect sense from the context of what's going on. But it's still possible. We've read a couple of places online where we suspect that this might have been an O'Brien in-joke. In The Golden Ocean, one of his kind of prequel books, uh, midshipman Peter Palafox engages in a game with his fellows in creating made-up names for things, and he uses the term gackling the cables then. <laughs> and another nautical author, Julian Stockwin, who wrote the Kid books, which I'm pretty sure came after all of the Patrick O'Brien series, also used this phrase. But since he was after O'Brien, who knows whether he was borrowing it from O'Brien or had it from another source. I, I'm happy in my kind of mental Patrick O'Brien model of the world that gackling is a real thing. If you've got a source that says otherwise, jump on the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash lovers hole. Jump on Twitter at whole lovers. Tell us what you think. Tell us what we might be missing here. Well, and, and it definitely comes up often enough, even in this paragraph, that this has got to be Chekhov's gackling. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> It's going gonna, it's gonna to come back to us shortly, I have a feeling. Right. Well, the, you know, they all head on shore, or, you know, this small group that Jack takes and, and Butcher and, and bringing Matron and Martin and uh, the, uh, the carpenter to, to help build this place where they're going to operate. And when they arrive, Captain Palmer greets Jack and invites him uh, to come have a drink with him. Jack says, no, no, I've got to go get, you know, get this thing built and prepared for surgery. And, and Palmer says, well, you know, come when you're ready after you've given your orders there. Uh, but Jack's looking at him and he's noticing he's just completely hairy. I guess he hasn't shaved and everything. He's got bandages all over him. Uh, as torn clothing, looks like a vagrant. And, and Jack's a little bit concerned because all the hair and these plasters, these bandages on his face make his expression hard to read. Jack says he'll he'll come back for the drink. And as he walks off to, to kind of with the, the group to get ready for Stephen's surgery, he notices that the Norfolks have about 80 or 90 men, and they're all standing on one side of this stream. And the surprises that have come over are standing 
opposite them on the other side of the stream. And and O'Brien writes that they're staring heavily at one another across the water like two unacquainted, potentially hostile bands of cattle, which really surprises Jack, who, you know, if this is peace, you know, here we got you know, all these sailors coming together. You know, he's expecting a lot of, of, you know, not ill feeling, but a lot of, you know, teasing each other, shouting back and forth, poking fun at each other. But he's, you know, he's thinking about Stephen right now, but he just notes that eh, it's just not quite right. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no banter. It all feels a bit awkward. Right. Doesn't it? Meanwhile, the surprises Carpenter and his mates have built a nice cabin with a new table in which Martin and Butcher can carry out this procedure on Stephen. Stephen's laid out on the operating table. Butcher invites Jack to stay and watch, but Jack says, uh-uh-uh, I have to go see Captain Palmer. He's, he's not a great fan of watching bloodshed, especially cold-blooded bloodshed executed on somebody that he's close to. So Butcher says, you're not going to be able to get back to the ship tonight, given the flood tide, given the foul wind. And Butcher, as we said before, he's the typical surgeon. I can almost visualize him rolling up his sleeves there. He says, okay. Um, he stops for a large pinch of snuff. He says, I always take snuff before I operate. He gets this on Stephen and attempts to brush it off with his handkerchief. And then something important happens. The text says, Stephen gave a tiny sneeze. Then, painfully, he drew a deeper breath, sneezed like a Christian, muttered something about spoonbills, and brought his hand up to cover his eyes, saying, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, in his usual harsh, grating voice, though very low. Pin him, cried Butcher, or he'll be sitting up. And through the door to Padine, Hey, there, go fetch a rope. Maturin, said Martin, bending over him. You have come to yourself. How happy I am. I have prayed for this. You had a great fall, but are now recovered. Put out the goddamn light, said Stephen. And A, it's a very funny moment. It's not the only time that patients have miraculously <laughs> recovered of their own accord in the canon, but this is a great moment. And Maturin tells Padine to stop standing there like an ox and fetch him some water. And poor old Butcher realizes there's going to be no surgery. He laments that he's not going to get to use the Lavoisier Trephine. It's, it's brilliant undercutting, Mike. It's a really great way to kind of suddenly take away from us the expectation of all this jeopardy for Stephen. And it's funny how Butcher wants to tie him down. You know, don't let the patient get away. What does he think he is? Cured or something? You know, I've got my instruments right here. I am going to use this thing. And, you know. Even if it kills me. Uh, even if it kills you. <laughs> right, right. Butcher's anticipating American healthcare. Hey, I don't get paid if I don't make this decision here. So let's get back on the table, buddy. I don't care about you. I got to make payroll. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, you know, we, we cut scene here and Palmer and Jack are then together. And Palmer's telling Jack about getting caught in the middle of the hurricane, you know, this bad weather that the surprise was on the end of. Palmer and, and the Norfolk were right in the middle of it at night, uh, shorthanded, having sent so many men away. And he's telling Jack this and he's about to say, having sent so many men away in prizes. And he thinks, oh, and he swallows the prizes part of it, <laughs> having sent so many men away, right? So, you know, they knew of the island and all these dangerous shoals to the west. So they're in this storm. It's nighttime. They're trying to get to this channel, but they just didn't make it. And they got close enough. Uh, they sunk there. Uh, the tide was down a bit so they could kind of get to shore, but they didn't have a chance to bring anything with them. And later they tried to send some men out in the light to dive for things. And they were completely eaten by the sharks here. As they're talking, Padine arrives 
Um, there's a little scuffle outside with with uh, Palmer's sentry. Padding pops through, <laughs> apparently having given the sentry what's for. So Padding arrives to report Stephen's recovery. It is, it is tried, gesturing to Jack. But O'Brien writes, Bonden was there to interpret. He means the doctor was not opened at all, sir. Recovered by himself, sprang up like a fairy, damned everyone all around, called for water, called for coconut milk, and is now asleep. No visitors allowed. <laughs> he takes a bit of a breath and he says, oh, and which I brought the stores, sir. And sir, it may be turning dirty outside. Well, needless to say, Jack is delighted. <laughs> there's some captainy stuff for Jack to do now. The weather's turning bad. There's something for us to take care of. He can also try and do his best at charming captain to captain, mano a mano, Captain Palmer. He presents his gifts to Captain Palmer. Palmer reacts to the rum, to the port wine and the tobacco. He's overjoyed. He offers rum for Jack's coconut milk. Jack is smiling about this idea of Stephen waking up and cursing everybody all around. But he composes himself. Before they get really into the social scene here, he tells Palmer that he has to consider himself a prisoner of war and jokes about not treating him and his men harshly. And then the conversation turns really kind of cold and awkward. Palmer insists that, as far as he's concerned, the war is over. And the two of them have a little back and forth about what constitutes an officer's duty. Jack saying that until he has confirmation from superior officers, he has to proceed this way. Palmer saying, taking this crew to England with the war already over will be as bitterly resented in the States as the leopards when she fired into the Chesapeake. And Mike, this is a really... Mm, real kind of knife into Jack's guts, reminding him of this heritage that he has with the horrible old leopard, which in a previous life had committed this near atrocity, you might say, against American ships. Jack remembers that everyone associated with that action, the leopard, was put out of their job. And as a result, American ports were close to the Royal Navy. So Jack's got good reason to tread carefully. Palmer sees his opportunity and says, well, why don't you drop me and the crew at the Marquesas and then we can find our own way on from there. Palmer asks Jack to think it over, proposes a toast to Maturin's health, which is a nice little appeasing gesture here. And Jack says he must get back to the ship. And over the thunder, as he leaves, Jack hears snippets of Palmer saying that he won't be able to get out there tonight and offering his bed for Jack. I'm like, it, it's really interesting the position that Jack now finds himself in because we thought a moment ago he was going to be able to be, you know, Captain Jack and be all resourceful. But he's kind of stuck here. He doesn't know whether he's Jack ashore and therefore a little bit naive and bungling or is he Jack afloat and the supremely resourceful hero. He doesn't know whether he's at war or at peace. He doesn't know whether the person that he's with here is a fellow honourable member of the captain's brethren or a wily adversary. And Jack is feeling it, and I think we're feeling it as well. It's unsettling, and I have the feeling that it's going to get worse before it gets better. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. It's really strange here. And, uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll save this as, as we get to the end of the next chapter, because it really, I, I want to find out what's actually going on here. Who's, you know, and, and we'll, we'll keep keep watching here. Is it war? Is it peace? What's happening here? Well, Bondin is waiting for Jack at the launch. So, you know, Jack has the toast to Stephen's health. He leaves. And Bondin has also heard about this tide. And he heard about it from an English deserter from uh, a Royal Navy ship called the Hermione. 
This is a ship where there was a mutiny, there were deserters, and this deserter has offered to point out the other deserters if he's held safe and, and gets the reward for them. So Bondin has reported this to Jack as this guy requested him to do. And as the rain and thunder really kind of breaks out, Jack, uh, realizing that they're not going to be able to get back to the ship, tries to slip quietly into the cabin. So it's kind of this a little bit of a funny scene where, you know, this thing's crashing all around and Jack's kind of sneaking the door open. <laughs> and Martin's sitting in there with his finger to his lips like, shh, shh, don't disturb him. But, you know, it sounds like there's explosions going on all around them. But we read that Stephen slept through the roughest night that Jack had ever known. And in the morning, for just a second, he opened an eye, greeted Jack, and then went straight back to sleep. <laughs> ah, and we get to the end of chapter nine here. O'Brien writes, with the same precautions as before, Jack crept out of the door into the streaming, wind-wrecked landscape. This is in the morning here, right? Yeah. He hurried ankle deep down to the shore where he observed that the launch had not moved. And there, standing on the broad bowl of a fallen tree and bracing himself against the still unbroken palm, he searched the white torn ocean with his pocket glass. To and fro, he swept the horizon, watching until every trough in the swell became a rise, near and far, north and south. But there was never a ship on the sea. <gasps> oh, the cables. Oh, you, the cables. You think of Ungackled cables, right? <laughs> so wow. what do we got here? So there's, you know, the surprise has disappeared in this storm. Jack with a small group of men is on this island full of, of you know, what we believe are enemies that he's just told are his prisoners. Yeah. Surrounded by sharks? Right, right. <laughs> Completely surrounded by sharks. And we really don't know much about this island other than, you know, these guys have wrecked here. So. Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm really wondering. So what happens next? This is clearly, as you said, not gone the, you know, okay, we caught the Norfolk. That was the point of the book. Or was it? <laughs> what happens yeah. next? Well, Mike, what happens next? Indeed. I think the only thing for it is to turn a page to the final chapter here. What do you say next week to just one more chapter of Patrick O'Brien? Well, I'll have to say the same thing that Jack said to Palmer about toasting Stephen's health. With all my heart. says, I would not slip with him, not for a world of gold. I tell you, my, my parrot is tremendously active this morning. <laughs> I don't know if you're hearing all that. So 